Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Josh Rao, who's the Orman Family Professor of Finance at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is also the co-founder of the Global Liberty Institute and the new Liberty Lens Substack. Josh studies public economics, namely taxation, pensions, and many more essential topics, and has established himself as a leading expert in the field. Welcome. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Josh, I want to get into your background. How did you first get interested in economics? And where'd you grow up? Well, it's a great question. I, I grew up in the Boston area. I went to a small private school in the Boston area called the Roxbury Latin School, a classically oriented school where students still learned and, and still learn Latin and ancient Greek. Um, and I went to Yale. I initially started out uh, as a uh, natural sciences person who's uh, starting out maybe being, being pre-med or interested in molecular biology, but uh, I took a freshman organic chemistry class that, was, that hit me like a ton of bricks and uh, ended up uh, exploring the social sciences because uh, I, was, uh, I was good at math. And uh, also my fundamental kind of issue with the natural sciences was that I just really didn't like working in a lab. I just was not really a lab person. Uh, when you were I, a numbers person. I was a numbers person and a data person, but not a lab person. And so uh, when I took my first economics course, it was a revelation because I realized that mathematics and data science could be applied to topics that were important and current and, and, uh, and that had, uh, had public policy, uh, public, public policy uh, influence. Fantastic. And you worked at uh, Goldman Sachs um, for a period of time before you, you did your PhD in economics at MIT. Um, you studied public economics and were a Jim Perturba student, uh, you know, who's advised many um, uh, of today's leading public economists. You know, I think uh, Emmanuel Saez, uh, you know, Sefi Sancheva, um, uh, and, and yourself. Um, I'm curious, what was it like at MIT in the early 2000s? Yeah, well, you know, just backing up a little bit, you know, coming out of Yale, I, I wasn't really very organized about what it is that I wanted to do. I, I had the solid grades in the economics and, and, and math classes, but I was not particularly uh, focused. And uh, I don't think I would ever have gotten into a PhD program today because, of course, today you need uh, not only the undergraduate background, but a couple of years of having been an RA for some professor, uh, you know, a set of glowing recommendations from very famous people. Um, and uh, I also, coming out of Yale, wasn't really sure that I wanted to get a PhD in economics. I, I was intrigued by some of the more practical applications of, of, of economics, but also wasn't organized enough or focused enough to go on the investment banking market that a lot of my uh, my, my kind of people in my, in my cohort from Yale were doing. Um, so uh, I ended up, actually, I lived in Germany for, for a year, and I, uh, I did a couple internships that I just put together myself, one of which was with um, the German parliament, a, a political party in the German parliament called the FTP, which is sort of a libertarian party. And I was intrigued by the idea that uh, there could be such a party, uh, because, of course, in America, I mean, we have a libertarian party, but it's not really a force. The FTP in Germany... Um, has traditionally, historically, been sort of a kingmaker for some of the other bigger parties. Things have changed a bit now. Like, um, CD, the, Christian the, like the CDU or the SPD. Party, SPD. Exactly. Yeah. So CDU or SPD would sort of go back and forth during the, the 20th century between 
the the control government having uh, being under the control of one of those two bigger parties, depending on who the FDP was aligned with. And so uh, uh, that was a really fascinating experience. And I, I ended up in an internship at Deutsche Bank in, in Frankfurt and uh, working on some macroeconomic strategy stuff at, at Deutsche. Uh, so that all happened over the course of a year. And then, then I ended up at, at, at Goldman Sachs in London in their economics research team. And uh, that was a terrific uh, experience. I was there uh, in London for two and a half years uh, with those folks, um, some really excellent PhD economists who were there applying their skills to really market-oriented questions. A lot of what we were doing uh, and a lot of what those groups still do involves macroeconomic forecasting and the interpretation of macroeconomic data for the firm's traders, currency traders and, and, and bond traders. This is like Jan Hatzius's economics research, you know, U.S. economics, global economics research. Uh, and maybe at the time, I think uh, Jim O'Neill in London was perhaps running some of this at the time. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Jan was a, a young economist uh, as well, like like me there. He was in the in the Frankfurt office. Uh, so I knew him back then. Of course, he's stayed with the firm and really done it. Done and he's German. He's German. Yeah. He, he moved from, from Frankfurt to the U.S. Uh, sometime around around 2000 or around the time that I left Goldman, he's really done amazing things uh, uh, at, at the firm. And you're um, fluent in German. Too, I am right? fluent in German. That is correct. Now, did, were you fluent in German uh, before you uh, went over to, to Germany or was that something you just picked up while you were there? Or Learned it in college, was very interested in uh, uh, the uh, uh, politics and economics of, uh, of, of, of the EU and just, just kind of picked it up while I was, while I was over there. And, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Goldman in London, you know, going to that time period, I was there in the, the late 1990s, it was the dot-com boom days. And uh, there were a lot of really very, very, very good people uh, working there. Um, after a couple of years, you know, I, I got to the feeling that the market prediction game wasn't really for me. Actually, people were under tremendous pressure there uh, to, to make predictions in, in markets on a pretty short time horizon. Uh, and they were, you know, people were punished if they were wrong. I mean, there was, uh, there was a currency crisis in Asia in, in mid-1998 that happened right after I joined. And the first thing that happened was about half of the people who I had said hello to during the first couple months that I was there were immediately fired for not having predicted the Asian currency crisis. So, so that gave me a bit of a sense of what, what working there was, uh, you know, could, could potentially be like if you, if you got stuff wrong. Um, and, uh, so, um, yeah, after after a couple of years, I decided that I wanted to uh, go back and get a PhD in economics and and uh, and and deepen my knowledge and uh, you know contribute to research and, and and take some more time to do the more deep, longer form research that you know that that we do when we write uh, write papers uh, in in economics. Wow, well, I, I you know it's fascinating. You know, forecasting is uh, you know very difficult, and you know this whole uh, recent uh, inflationary episode in the early twenty twenties and the, the uh, almost inability to forecast that uh, on the part of professional forecasters, um, if that's any indication, I, I think you uh, uh, chose uh, um, perhaps a, a field that uh, might be somewhat um, less impossible. Um, you're a very distinguished public economist. You study a number of things from taxes to pensions. Can you explain what your research agenda is and its main ideas? Yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit about how I got into it. Um, you know, I was always interested, even from the Goldman Sachs days, in uh, in financial markets as a vehicle for for long term investments and finance being about the ability of uh, individuals to you know move resources and consumption uh, across time and across different states of the world at, at, at different prices depending on what the conditions of financial markets were. And uh, I uh, so that that was one set of issues I was very interested in. Also, public policy issues like. Uh, inequality, the measurement of inequality, and taxation—the optimal size of government. Um, what's the right, uh, you know, what's the right marginal tax rate um, uh, that that should be set? Uh, those types of public economic questions. So I went to MIT uh, intending to work with Jim Paterba, uh, who I uh, eventually did become my advisor, but but not before a bit of a bumpy start. You know, I think in the in the spirit of posting your losses, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about the the beginnings of my of my time at at, at MIT. Uh, first of all, I was I was admitted, uh, but not with funding, and I, I failed to get an NSF fellowship. Um, but I went to the admitted students' day, and uh, and talked to Jim Paterba and other professors, and uh, you know was 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 very impressed and looking forward to working there and uh, to to being a student there. Uh, but the uh, you know director of graduate studies, you know when it came to uh, the meeting that I had with him, he said. Uh, 
look, I'm sorry to tell you, but, you know, we took too many people uh, this year. And he basically said, you know, mistakes were made. And he didn't say you were one of them directly, but that, that was kind of the implication that I was that I was getting. And he actually said, please don't come here uh, because we have no money for you. And not only we're we not giving you money this year, we're not going to give you money ever. Uh, and so, so I, uh, this is tough, this tough, uh, tough medicine to, to, to take. Um, and, uh, I thought about it and, you know, because I had been, uh, working at Goldman, you know, I, I didn't make a huge amount of money at Goldman. I was still you know, a lower level person, but I had some savings and I actually said, you know what, screw it. You know, relative to my next best, uh, next best option, um, you know, getting a PhD in economics and MIT is what I want to do. And I'm not going to let myself be discouraged by this. Uh, so I had to fork over tuition when a lot of other, well, all my other, uh, classmates basically had their, their tuition paid for. And to make things even worse, after I had accepted, I came to learn, uh, that actually Jim Perturba, he decided after that, uh, that he was going to take a, a year's leave, uh, and go be at the Hoover Institution, actually a place that I've spent a lot of time at, uh, in the last most recent decade of my career. And so things were looking, uh, were looking pretty rough, uh, at that, at that time for me. Um, and, uh, I guess in the spirit of, uh, you know, stick with your plan, don't get knocked off your plan. Um, I can say that, uh, it was, it was good that I didn't because what, what ended up happening was, uh, you know, first year in a PhD program, as you know, John, you know, you're bumping around a little bit. It can be hard to get your footing exactly. And you're going to try out some stuff. And, um, uh, you know, I, I worked for a few different people, uh, different professors and did a few different things. I had to do RA work to, um, actually to, you know, to, 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 to pay the bills. Uh, and, uh, I think I got my, got my footing and then Jim came back and, um, I started working, working with him on, on the topics that actually come to MIT to work on. Well, that's uh, incredibly um, impressive, um, and, and it's, I mean, it's amazing to me that the best economics department in the world um, you know, doesn't, you know, provide full funding for its students or has, sort of has this expectation that many get NSFs. I mean, yeah. that's sort of always been an interesting phenomenon um, to me, but the, the fact that you were able to persevere through that, um, you know, is, is really amazing. And, and also, you know, it's, it's totally something I think, you know, worth fighting for. I mean, to be at MIT in the early 2000s, you know, just sort of at the beginning of this wave of, you know, causal inference, the credibility revolution, you know, what a great time to be uh, in Cambridge, you yeah. know, at MIT or Harvard, yeah. um, for that matter. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, uh, I think, you know, what I, what I got from being at MIT was, and first of all, Jim Paterba, uh is just a, a tremendously impressive uh, advisor, wonderful advisor who invests a lot of time and energy in in, uh, in really growing his PhD students. Uh, we're having a celebration of him uh, uh, next year. Uh, not that he's retiring, but there's just uh, there's a tradition de developing now that, you know, when someone's kind of in their mid-60s, you just kind of get a bunch of people together, a bunch of students together to celebrate the person at a time when they're still really at their prime and, 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 and you know, do, uh, doing, doing great things. And uh, that's going to be in March 2024. I'm looking forward to going and celebrating him. So he was a huge you know, huge influence and, 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 uh, and, and was a, uh, just a you know, tremendous mentor for me. Uh, but also at the, at the same time being, uh, you know, being exposed to the ideas of, of Josh Angrist and, and John Gruber and other people who are applying the, uh, techniques of, of, of identification, um, to, to, to address causality and economics. So it was, it was an exciting time to be there. I, I was known at the time by my classmates as, uh, MIT econ's only Republican. Uh, I didn't necessarily totally embrace that, to be honest. I think I thought of myself more as sort of a swing voter. And especially because I focused kind of on economics, you know, coming out of the Clinton administration, things didn't look that bad. I mean, the, you know, the, there, was a, there was a surplus, at least on the books, the way that they, that they measure it. Um, there had been some welfare reform. Uh, and, uh, you know, George W. Bush had the hallmarks of being and ultimately became a sort of, I guess we think of as being kind of a big spending Republican. Uh, with uh, not only the foreign policy, uh, the things which you can debate their necessity, but uh, also Medicare Part D and other big government expansions. So I wasn't even sure what that, uh, what exactly that meant. MIT's only Republicans, but uh, MIT's only Republican, but maybe, uh, maybe my classmates saw something that I didn't know. I, I, <laughs> over time, I've come to, uh, come to embrace that. Wonderful. I mean, it, it's, it's so fascinating. I like, you know, to think how much certainly the policy and political stands have changed since then, just over uh, more than uh, 20 years, and how the field has changed over that period of time. So I want to get um, into you know, your, your research agenda. So you, you spent, since then, you know, you've, uh, it's been almost, uh, I think, 20 years since you graduated. 
um, in, in 2004. What, what do you think are have been your most impactful research accomplishments thus far? Thanks. Well, uh, a few things. So I think uh, the area that I kind of got known for uh, in the in the field of financial economics is uh, this topic of, of pensions, uh, of uh, uh, government liabilities and uh, pensions in particular. Uh, and it's interesting. It was an area that's always interesting to me because it's a topic where uh, all of public policy seemed to be making some fundamental basic mistakes in their applications of the principles of finance. And, and, and it was a, an issue that, uh, that, that sort of brought together um, financial markets and government budgeting. So the, the big challenge, I think, that uh, goes on in, uh, uh, in this area is that state and local governments, uh, they always have an incentive to uh, sort of delay costs in ways that, that future politicians will have to bear. And there is no easier way to do that, and actually no more widely accepted way of doing it, than uh, telling your employees, uh, you know, in instead of paying you in current compensation as much as you otherwise would get, I'm going to pay you in pensions. I'm going to give you know, promise you a pension, really nice pension years down the line. You got to stay here for 20 or 25 or 30 years if you want to get it, if you want it to be any good. Um, and uh, what was fascinating to me is, I, as I, uh, you know, in grad school, I, uh, my, my, my fields were, were public economics and, and corporate finance. And I think I, I just, you know, seeing the tension between those two things, uh, the, the way that we know from financial economics, the way that liability is supposed to be measured, uh, and the way that we model uh, the evolution of assets, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, looking across states of the world and, and, and over time, uh, and then looking at the way that the government budgeting was done, which is a way that uh, government budgeting essentially uh, just treats uh, these forecasts of financial markets, you know, that, that say the stock market's going to crank out a return of 10% a year as being a sure thing. They don't, they don't adjust that for risk at all. And so what you end up having is situations where, um, you know, state and local governments are uh, basically doing budgeting on completely flawed assumptions. So I, I think uh, one of the, uh, you know, some of the empirical work I got known for was remeasuring state and local government liabilities using the principles of finance and applying the principles of finance to, um, you know, to state and local government budgeting, uh, uh, you know, on that topic and, and, and sort of by extension on um, on other things like uh, uh, like the retiree health care that they that they offer, uh, and and trying to move the conception of public budgeting uh, more in a direction uh, that aligns with the way that we think about it in finance. So that was kind of one of the one of the big things. In, in does that include like unfunded pension liabilities, and which are sort of an increasing um, issue uh, in, in certainly our, our fiscal policy discussions. Um, yeah, because that includes entitlements. We'll talk a little bit more about the U.S. federal debt situation later. But yeah. in, in your research, that that's encompassing of that. Yeah, right. I mean, that was you know sort of motivated initially by how, say, you know, a, a city like the city of Chicago uh, budgets for the pensions that it promises to public safety officials or to teachers, and those are when we say the words unfunded pension liabilities, which. Um, another great mentor of mine, uh, Professor Ed Glazer, uh, said that uh, his wife told him it was those were the the, the, the least sexy uh, two words in the uh, three words in the English language, unfunded pension liabilities. But uh, nonetheless, um, I, uh, I, I uh, to me, I find I find it a very uh, fascinating topic of study. And indeed, it's that. And then you know you can also extend these types of considerations to other government programs like Social Security. Mm -hmm. Perhaps uh, increasingly the three most uh, important words in in, uh, in fiscal and debt policy. Yes, I like it. Yeah, the three most important words. Who cares if they're sexy? The point is that they're important. Exactly. Now, you spent about 15 years as a distinguished professor, and then you decided that you wanted to serve in government. You joined the Trump Administration Council of Economic Advisors in the autumn of 2019, soon before the COVID-19 pandemic hit the U.S., uh, tell us about what that experience was like. Well, uh, when I was called uh, by uh, acting CEA chair Tom Phillipson in fall of 2019 to, to join the CEA, um, it was a great honor for me, uh, something I'd always uh, wanted to do. And uh, it was a time in my life where it was it was possible for me to for me to go do it. And uh, uh, it was something that I didn't say no to. And I, I actually would advise anybody who gets called on for government service to uh, to you know, try to do it and, and make it happen. Um, I also would advise them to do something that I did, which was to set down for myself in advance 
the limits of what I would be willing to tolerate as uh, being part of that position. And uh, this was inspired to me by someone who uh, was a mentor of my mentors, a man named Martin Feldstein, a great professor of, of economics at Harvard University, who uh, had uh, quit the Reagan administration. He was the chair of the CEA. He quit the Reagan administration uh, over the issue of budget deficits and over the fact that uh, the Congress was pr proposing, was you know, passing a budget that uh, would have, at the time, had a $100 billion deficit, which is, of course, nothing in, in, you know, compared to, to, to where we are today. And Martin Feldstein was one of the, you know, famously, I think, one of the few uh, deficit hawks in, in the Reagan administration. Exactly, um, exactly. And so um, I was, when I went to the Trump administration, I was worried about what had been going on with the deficit because it wasn't good. Um, and especially in, under a, in a situation where, uh, at least for the, for the first part of that administration, you had both the presidency and both houses of Congress can, controlled by the Republicans. Uh, well, I liked the Tax Cut and Jobs Act and some of the improved incentives in that, in that act. I was not happy. Which brought with, down the corporate tax rate to 21% and changed up the expensing rules and... Um, and, and I guess, you know, it was very much a pro-growth kind of tax reform. Didn't do too much on the personal side of things. And, and a number of those things are coming up in 2025. And, right. Uh, certainly a big tax discussion is, is brewing. But you, you came in after that. Came in after that. Right, right. And, um, you know, f first uh, few months were uh, were good. You know, we were uh, working on uh, that during that cycle of the end of the year into the beginning of the next year, basically working on the economic report of the president. And you are um, preparing the president for any, uh, you know, economics that, that, that are going to go into the State of the Union address. And we did a number of things, including, uh, you know, taking stock of where the U.S. was on inequality, uh, on uh, income growth at different parts of the income distribution, uh, which is a, a big topic. Like another topic I could talk about all day, because I think that fundamentally the narrative in the press about inequality is based on some research by some other economists out there that I think is wrong. Uh, you know, this is the, the sort of narrative of, uh, of uh, Emmanuel Saez and Thomas Piketty. Um, and I think that the, the other economists have worked on it, like uh, Auten and Splinter and others have basically figured out that there are some real statistical problems with the Piketty-Saez. They're at the uh, Joint Committee on Taxation. Or one of, one of the JCT, the other, one of the JCT, the other is the Treasury, exactly. Um, so some of that made its way into the State of the Union address. So that, that was, that was kind of neat. And we're, we're also doing a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of what you do when you're at CEA is uh, trying to, you know, make sure that when sort of bad ideas bubble up from various parts of the government that you're shedding some solid economic light on what those what those ideas might actually entail or do. And so there was a lot of little there were a lot of little uh, things like that. But what what really you know, things really changed when uh, when COVID happened. And, uh, you know, uh, I think the policy response to COVID uh, of course, really divided uh, divided the country. Uh, in some ways, really divided the world. And uh, initially, I think uh, President Trump's instincts were uh, not not to overreact, to make sure not to overreact. Uh, initially, and this was also the case with uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Also, initially, were saying, you know, we're not going to overreact on the on lockdowns. We're not going to, you know, change. Try to, you know change our entire society or e economic structure here just to, uh, to, you know, to, uh, to combat COVID. Uh, but, um, but things turned pretty quickly, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, who the, who the president was listening to and, uh, on, on health policy, uh, he was obviously listening strongly to Fauci and, and Burks and on economic policy, uh, when this crisis happened, uh, suddenly my feeling was that the economists within the administration, at least the ones who I knew, weren't really being consulted about the economic policy response. And the economic policy response in March 2020, uh, if we sort of re rewind and think back to, to, you know, to the history of this and what was going on then, uh, was uh, the run-up to what was called the CARES Act. Uh, CARES Act at the end of March uh, 2020 uh, introduced some of these really big new government programs. Um, stimulus checks for people, uh, big business bailouts, including targeted bailouts to airlines, uh, small business bailouts with the, the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, which was a program that turned out to be rife with fraud, um, flat dollar bonuses for unemployment insurance. The unemployment insurance is a program, it's already a stabilizer, you know, and 
by doing additional legislation on top of it, it expanded in such a way that made it so that nobody would have an incentive to work for a very long time. Uh, one of the aspects of it was these flat $600 bonus, bonus amounts. Uh, that, made, that made for a lot of people the replacement rate for, for, uh, of UI for their job 150% or more. I mean, there are studies, you know, a bunch of studies that, uh, that showed this, and it was immediately apparent. Um, plus hundreds of billions of dollars to state and local governments that ultimately they did not need. Now, I could be nice and say, well, there was a lot of uncertainty. We didn't know. Uh, but this was a program of government expansion that I just was not, did not want to be part of. And, um, and uh, you know, in particular, I also, as I said, I think, you know, um, uh, if, I, if I felt that not necessarily me, but that others, other economists at the CEA uh, were, or, or, in, or in the administration generally were, were making that point or were around to make that point, uh, that would have been, that would have been one thing. But um, as it was, I didn't feel that point was getting made. And I, I, to this day, very much strongly disagree with, uh, with that, uh, that policy response. And, um, and so even though I, you know, I, this was about five months into my, into my time there, when I, uh, when I resigned, uh, and I planned to stay for at least a year, I'd arranged a year's leave from Stanford and, and hope maybe to stay for longer. Um, I ended up returning, you know, come, come, coming back to, to Stanford because they basically crossed my, the limit that I had set for myself going into it. Fascinating and, and, um, certainly, com um, commendable to sort of see this, um, see this coming and, and to, um, uh, uh, you know, stand by, um, your own, um, uh, principles and ideas. I'm curious, like, you know, just to take stock on the legacy of, of the CARES Act, you know, it's fascinating to think, you know, over three years later, where we are now, you know, we had you know, the CARES Act, you had stimulus checks, PPP grants, um, you, it had, you know, massive uh, unemployment insurance, you know, there were expansions and so forth, and, and subsequent bills. And then, you know, we had the uh, additional Trump bill, I think, in the end of uh, 2020, 2020, I believe. Uh, and then uh, we had uh, the Biden ARP. We had more recently the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. I think there's been over that period of time like an increase in the debt to GDP of like on the order of twenty uh, percent, um, just from uh, from those um, sort of initiatives alone. You know, first and foremost, um, one, um, do you think that um, the inflation that we're seeing today, uh, that you know started to uptick in twenty twenty one. Uh, you know, that has peaked at around you know eight percent uh, you know headline and and uh, you know a little bit less than that on the core side. Do you think that that uptick in inflation is related to that increase in government spending? I think absolutely it's related to that increase in government spending. Uh, and I you know I know I mean some people who I who I uh, respect and have worked with uh, draw a uh, draw a line between the spending that happened in twenty twenty. And the spending that happened in 2021, and they say, well, you know, in 2020 it was necessary; we had to do this. But then ARPA 2021, that was unadvised. Uh, I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, I, I also I think that uh, uh, the the lockdowns of COVID and the spending increases were really kind of two sides of the same coin. And in fact, I would go so, so far as to say that all of that spending was a way for the government to essentially tranquilize the American people into accepting these destructive lockdowns and to say for a lot, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'm, you know, this isn't so bad. I'm getting, uh, I'm still getting my, uh, you know, I'm getting my stimulus check and I'm getting my PPP loan and I'm getting my UI and, uh, and, you know, accepting something that ultimately I think is going to be extremely destructive, uh, not only because of the new baseline that it's sort of reset on the economic spending side, but also, of course, what we've done to our younger people who we essentially locked in their homes for a year and a half and thought, oh, this will be fine. Um, at least in some states, we, we, we did that. Uh, and of course, it's not it's not at all fine. Um, and, and and so in terms of inflation, I think some of the evidence of this is that savings rates spiked up to over 30 percent during this time. By definition, that almost means you're sending out money, the federal government sending out money that people didn't need. Why, why do you have to boost people's savings rates to, to, uh, to that level? And, uh, and of course, then when all that money came flooding back into the economy, um, for, to, on the demand side, the supply side, particularly labor supply, was still very, very limited. So I absolutely, I trace a pretty continuous line. I, I agree that, you know, 
I'll agree that ARPA and the, the March 2021 one legislation was, you know, was perhaps the least necessary of all of it. But I also I also blame uh, uh, the people in charge uh, during 2020 uh, in both Congress and the administration for uh, for, for for going in that direction. I also, you, you point out debt to GDP. I mean, another figure that I just, you know, uh, think is worth uh, bearing in mind is just what is government spending to GDP? I like to ask my students uh, before telling them anything or giving them any readings, but, you know, what, what do you think government, the ratio of government spending is to GDP in this country? And I explain what that means. It's, you know, what, for every dollar of spending in the U.S. economy, what percentage of that is is spent by the government? And during 2020, in the United States of America, which people usually think of as this bastion of free market capitalism, that number went up to 48%, 48%. And it subsided back a little bit to around 44% the following year. And I think it's settled into about 42% this year. But this is the United States of America. Do people feel that they are getting the government, the services, the quality of services uh, that, that that amount of money would buy, should buy. And by the way, this is this is federal, state, and local combined. Are the numbers that I'm that I'm giving you here, uh, and uh, I, I, so I, I think this is. Uh, I think the inflation is the you know is is uh, is one of the symptoms of what it is that we've done. Um, but I, I I really think that we need to step back and ask: uh, Is this the appropriate uh, the appropriate size of government? I'm, I just want to like let, let's like rewind it to 2020, uh, March 2020. You are Secretary of the Treasury, and let's go like you know piece by piece here, like how you know how the response um, with you know obviously the benefit of hindsight could have been um, a, a better one, and obviously you know at the time it wasn't totally known how you know bad the pandemic was, you know how lethal it was, and so forth, and, and that was something that was sort of learned over time. Um, but looking back with twenty twenty hindsight, uh, I think it's fair to say that you know, the lockdowns uh, certainly. Uh, didn't uh, really pre- prevent uh, uh, transmission and, and perhaps cause further, you know, economic losses. I'm curious, like, in, in terms of, like, fiscal policy response, we, we don't need to get too much in, into the Fed policy response um, and the sort of lender last resort stuff, but just on, on the fiscal policy side of things, uh, obviously there was a lot of uh, QE uh, as well, and this was in part a, a joint effort, but on the, on the fiscal policy side of things, like, okay, so, you know, we think, you know, unemployment insurance, fair to say that, uh, maybe uh, we should have done a percentage of wage replacement instead of like you know four hundred dollars a week. That that doesn't play with the marginal tax rates and uh, creates the kind of distortions that that you know having over one hundred percent marginal tax rates can create. But I'm curious, like how, how would you rethink something like um, you know the stimulus checks um, or, yeah. or something like that? You know the PPP. I mean, you know, yeah. it just there was so much government infrastructure that was sort of um, used. Uh, You know, they were using the Small Business Administration to work with the banking system and a a lot of smaller banks. And there was certainly a lot of uproar when certain businesses, hedge funds were taking out uh, PPP uh, grants. I mean, they they weren't loans, uh, given as a loan, but it was forgiven and and turned into a grant. And it was basically just money to largely small businesses. Um, But there's been a lot of controversy about um, certainly, you know, how much waste, how much fraud was there. And I'm curious, like, you know, do you think that maybe the seamless checks alone would have been enough? It was, you know, what should we have done for small businesses? Like, and, and going forward, you know, say we have a pandemic in the future, how uh, do you think, uh, you know, we should handle uh, you know, such a fiscal policy response to that kind of, uh, uh, you know, recession? Well, let's take each of these in turn. So, so first of all, on the on the unemployment insurance, um, any expansion of the unemployment insurance program, whether it would be with a flat dollar amount, which creates really perverse incentives, or more preferably with some kind of percentage of wage uh, uh, bonus on top if that's if, if that was even necessary. Because again, the UI program is already in place. It wasn't, it wasn't, there, it's not clear there was a need to expand UI. Mm-hmm. But if there was going to be an expansion of UI, the, the point that, that I always make is this is an opportunity also to try to fix UI for the long-term future. You know, the unemployment insurance system, I don't want to get too much into details, but um, every state is supposed to keep maintain a balance at the Treasury that's sort of like a precautionary balance. It's supposed to be sort of th- the equivalent of three really bad years. They're supposed to have that in precautionary holdings at the Treasury. And about half of the states comply, and, about, and the other half don't comply. And there is no teeth to it. There's no, there's no punishment for not complying. And what ends up happening is, and this, this is going on now, is that, uh, well, California and other states that were not complying, they had to take big loans from the federal government 
to pay the UI during, uh, during, during COVID. And now they're supposed to be paying those loans back, but they don't have the money to pay them back because now there's a deficit. And so they're passing those costs on to businesses in the higher state UI taxes. Okay, that was a bit of a detour. But the point is that the entire UI system had a very flawed architecture. And so the way to get a compromise in place is to say, yeah, all right, maybe we need to expand UI a little bit for this crisis, but let's also fix the future to say that if states want to have generous UI, they actually have to have those precautionary savings on hand. They actually have to have a fiscally sound um, system. And and so it's those, so the, the general philosophy is if you're going to do an expansion today for a crisis, let's make sure we do something to sort of fix the future. And so, um, uh, so that, that's what I wish would happen with that, and with a lot of with a lot of government programs and and, uh, and other things, and other you know sort of bailout bailout type things. Um, uh, you know, any system where you're going to pump in money, you should be thinking, okay, in exchange for this, what are we going to, what kind of reform are we going to ask for the long term? You know, for something like um, the big business bailouts, I mean, bailing out airlines was something that was just you know, I guess it was you know, ended up costing about twenty five billion, which I I don't know, I suppose now we're supposed to think that's small. I didn't think it's small, but. Um, uh, you know, you've flown on any of the three major airlines in the last, you know, in the last couple of decades. I mean, you've, you've flown on, on a, an airline that was in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We have structures in place so that when companies can't pay their, all their debts, that the creditors who bought bonds in the company end up, you know, they, they take over ownership from the stockholders. Stockholders get wiped out. And so one of the, one of the things I think also about the, the policy response that really bothered me is that it bailed out shareholders equity holders, most of whom, you know, voluntarily, all of them voluntarily took risk to buy equities in these companies, buy stock in these companies. The idea being that if the company had a bad realization, they get wiped out and then the creditors get to take over the company. And by stepping in and removing that entire mechanism, we basically, um, you know, we, 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 we took the entire system of shareholder capitalism and risk-based capitalism and we said, you know, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to let anybody lose a, a dollar. And the, the irony of all of this is that shareholders, equity holders, came out of COVID doing great. Mm-hmm. You know, look at look at what the stock market did in the year from March. You know, it, there was a dip in 2020. People started getting scared, and came I, roaring back very quickly. Came roaring back quickly, and then way surpassed its its initial level. So, um, so I I think uh, making use. I think my general principle is number one. You know, make use of existing structures and programs that we know. Um, that we know work. And if you have to, uh, some colleagues of mine at the GSB and I, after I came back, proposed uh, a, uh, you know, something that we thought would be more useful than a lot of the other facilities and programs that are being proposed, which is a, uh, a sort of support for debtor in possession financing, which is the kind of bridge financing you need to have a, uh, a bankruptcy process, a financial restructuring process that would have kept airlines and other companies operating, but that would have not just bailed out uh, shareholders and uh, and that would have um, uh, that, that, that would have let the normal course of financial markets uh, do their job. I'll, I'll give you one other example. Is also the money that was directed unconditionally to state and local governments. Uh, CARES Act, I think uh, CARES Act, I think five hundred billion to state and local governments. Uh, and there were some attempts to try to place restrictions on what they could do with that money. There's more recently, also been the bailouts in public sector unions. Too. Yep, yep. Union pension plans also a big, you know, big thing. Um, with the, with the state, state local governments, uh, uh, you know, state local governments they they borrow from the public. They issue municipal bonds. That's a four trillion dollar market. Uh, municipal bonds are mostly owned by uh, by households, actually by by high income households, and they have historically had higher yields than say treasury bonds, a better you know, better savings vehicles for households because those households, you're taking on some risk. You know, you're taking on some risk that uh, the city might, you know, run into financial trouble or the state might run into financial trouble. Uh, and, uh, and you, you know, you also, you know, you, 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 get a, you get a tax break that tends to lower the yield relative to other types of debt. But, but, uh, but because of that default risk and maybe some liquidity, you know, there may be a little less liquid than treasury bonds, uh, they end up getting higher yields. Why was it that no municipal bond holder lost a single cent during this episode, uh, but um, uh, but the taxpayers came in and just bailed out every state and local government, just 
through money, Ed. You know, these, these municipal bonds, these are owned by, again, largely high-income households. It's, it's not like uh, something that has a huge amount of systemic risk. So I, I wrote an op-ed uh, during 2020 where I said, if there's going to be any more, I mean, I wish they had done this initially, but any more bailout funding of state or local governments, they should have to haircut their municipal bonds outstanding, meaning that if you, if an investor owned a municipal bond and that bond was worth $1,000, maybe they have to haircut that thing down to say, okay, now that's only going to be worth 900 You took risk and you're going to have to uh, bear, you know, bear the downside, some of the downside when that downside happens. That's what, you know, in the European Union, when uh, Greece uh, was, uh, you know, defaulted on its debt, the European Union, uh, European Commission negotiated a you know, bailout package for Greece. Bondholders had to take some kind of loss on that. They weren't bailed out 100% in their entire, they weren't sent all the way to zero. Um, but to me, a lot of these things really just violated the principles of capitalism that I, I feel that our, our country and our economy are built on. And so as we think about what, what's the right way to deal with, deal with crises, sure, if you feel that there are some vulnerable parts of the economy that need support, you know, go do it. But use this crisis, use crisis as an opportunity um, to, uh, to, to reform systems like, you know, the UI system that, that was sort of broken to begin with. Um, and, uh, and secondly, you know, don't do bailouts when you don't, when you don't need to do bailouts. Why, why should taxpayers have to, have to always support big corporations? You know, it, it just makes no sense to me. Absolutely. And, and certainly some of that, I, I think, violates, you know, Badgerho's dictum, which is, you know, having some penalty in, in, in these sorts of uh, emergency lending or, or, or bailout type events. I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on uh, just the, you know, Biden administration, House Republicans, they just came to an agreement on the debt ceiling, you know, suspending uh, it until January 1st, uh, 2025, exchange for about one and a half trillion dollars in, um, in in reduced spending, according to CBO. Any thoughts on the long, long-term prospects for the U.S. debt and, and government spending? Yeah, so this deal has been uh, recently has gotten, you know, some criticism from some uh, of the more fiscally conservative corners of um, of the of the Republicans in, in Congress for not somehow not, you know, not doing enough or not going far enough that, that McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, you know, didn't, didn't get enough concessions, uh, enough spending cuts, um, you know, in exchange for the authorization of raising the debt ceiling. Um, and while I understand where that is coming from, uh, because I think that we are, you know, if we're saving at CBO's estimate, we're going to save, you know, 1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. I mean, that's, that's nice, but I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty small as a percentage of the the you know, total debt or of the total deficits that we expect to have over the next 10 years. Um, so I understand where it's coming from. Uh, politically, you know, um, I don't think that much we could have expected much more. Uh, and the reason I say that is that, uh, you know, uh, the Democrats have the Senate, Democrats have the presidency, and uh, the Republicans have a razor thin margin in the House. And what really has to happen if the long run picture for the U.S., uh, fiscal situation is going to improve is that there has to be a party, a party in power that where there is agreement uh, among the different, uh, you know, different branches of government. So, you know, alignment of the, of the parties, I'm thinking it's probably going to be the Republican party, but maybe there'll be a new party. I don't know. Uh, and, uh, and where, you know, voters have been convinced that they need to actually vote for the party that's going to, that's going to uh, be fiscally responsible and try to fix the debt and deficit mess. Uh, I just think, you know, when you have such a razor thin margin of people, uh, you know, the, 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 the mandate is just not strongly enough there. I wish it were, I, I, you know, if, if, if I were a benevolent dictator, I would say we need to do this for the future. You know, we need to, we need to, we need to put the future on a, on a, on a solid footing. But, um, but you know, the, the, the votes just otherwise weren't there. And so I think, I think probably we did as well as we could have. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a strange thing. I think the debt ceiling, you know, it's this weird thing where the, the U.S. possibility of default being sort of a part of the you know, negotiation, obviously not ideal. I mean, creates all this excess volatility in financial markets. But I mean, on the flip side, it's like the one tools as, as bad as it is that actually seems to bring about some conversations about uh, government spending and, and debt. I remember back you know, ten over 10 years ago in 2011 when there was the debt ceiling standoff then and 
the S&P uh, or S&P downgrading U.S. debt, and that caused you know big sell-off and, and risk uh, markets. Ironically, it actually caused Treasuries to rally. But it, you know also that series of events created the Bull Simpson Commission, which seemed to be simulating some public dialogue about fiscal policy and budget reform, but didn't seem to really go anywhere. Looking you know uh, twelve years later, in fact, things maybe have gotten worse uh, in in recent years. Um, I, I want to uh, just finish on talking to you about these uh, uh, new endeavors that um, you have started. You recently um, have founded the uh, Global Liberty Institute and your Substack Liberty Lens. What are they about? We started this one. So, so the uh, Global Liberty Institute is a uh, joint effort between uh, myself and Scott Atlas, uh, uh, someone who's uh, well known from his uh, work during um, during 2020 and during uh, during COVID to try to um, uh, you know, shed, shed some some actual rational light on on uh, the health policy responses. Uh, and we started this uh, organization, I think, for 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 two purposes. Um, uh, for, first is that uh, it's an international organization, sort of in the spirit of the World Economic Forum. And the World Economic Forum and a lot of the other international organizations have been doing, uh, pushing really, really hard on the research front on a lot of uh, what I think of as being sort of uh, kind of big government uh, sort of rationales for, for big government. Uh, combined with, um, uh, you know, combined with sort of a, a cooperation between corporations and government, which is just going to kind of feed even bigger government. And, you know, so some of these topics are things like, uh, you know, addressing inequality. We, we, we were talking about this before. Uh, if you listen to these international organizations, you know, you would think that we're having this explosion in inequality that requires some kind of new massive redistribution of, of, of money. But when you look at the actual statistics that a lot of this stuff is based on, a lot of their claims are based on, they're very, very flimsy. They don't actually hold up. And really, these organizations are feeding the public a line and a narrative that it makes them want to believe, that makes them believe that we need all this uh, additional redistribution. And so uh, one of the sets of things we're trying to do is just kind of uh, have, a, have an, an organization that, that brings together our researchers across different countries to try to provide some, uh, put, put some of the stuff in a more rational lens, things like inequality or uh, or climate. You know, what's the what's the rational response to um, to, uh, to to climate change? Uh, the you know the idea that we're going to go to net zero and that we have um, uh, you know it's going to cost uh, over hundred trillion dollars to do that. Um, you know, this is something that's being pushed very very hard by a. Uh, uh, a sort of cooperation between uh, large companies that are going to profit from it and governments that uh, that that enjoy increasing their power, and uh, I think the evidence of that is that you know one of the last COP uh, meetings in the COP meeting in, in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, you know, uh, it's the big environmental big environmental conference environmental conference. conference, yeah, you know, the Copenhagen, right? You know, the financial institutions, the banks were lining up to provide. This hundred, I think, one hundred thirty trillion dollars of financing. Well, well, of, of course they were. I mean, you know, if if you tell everybody, hey, okay, we need to destroy all of this capital that we have, this this uh, dirty, uh, you know, this dirty energy producing capital. We need to replace it with this green capital, uh, and we're going to have to finance it somehow. So, so the companies that are going to build that new stuff, they're going to have to borrow or raise, you know, one hundred thirty trillion dollars. Well, you know, who benefits and who loses from that? I mean, clearly the financiers who are going to get to be the intermediaries and 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 loan the money or or, or provide the equity capital, they're huge beneficiaries of of that. I, I, I like to compare that to the sort of broken window uh, fallacy, you know, the broken window fallacy of Bastiat, which is this idea that, you know, there's this fallacy that, hey, maybe, you know, we should go around breaking windows and then hiring repair people to repair them because we could gen generate all this economic activity. Well, you know, the person who benefit who would benefit from that would be the glass repairman, and in this case, you know, the the entities are going to benefit from it are you know the the, the companies are going to build all this new green energy and the financiers are going to finance it. So I'm getting a little off topic, but you asked about GLI. So GLI is trying to uh, you know uh, be a be a voice of reason on on those topics. Second uh, role of GLI is that uh, organizations like the World Economic Forum have done really well at organizing young people on their economic policy objectives and young people who then end up going into public policy. So the chairman of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, is fond of actually boasting that graduates of his program uh, include uh, people like Justin Trudeau. I mean, he's, he's proud of that fact. Uh, but um, uh, I don't 
think necessarily he should be proud of it, but he is. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, the government of Argentina, you know, the, which is an economic basket case. Uh, what you have to hand it to them, though, is that they have been incredibly effective at mentoring these people. And so what, what we are doing with the Global Liberty Institute, um, and I know you were able to attend our first Rising Leaders Summit uh, in Palm Beach in, in, in February, is uh, to try to do a better job of organizing and mentoring rising policy leaders uh, who are going to be facing the economic problems of the day, the critical and uh, pressing and, 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 and uh, really, yeah, really, really dramatic economic problems of the day uh, using the, the rational principles of economics. And, uh, and I, I hope that we're going to be able to do that. Uh, fantastic. And your new Liberty Land Substack. Yeah, so so the Liberty Land Substack is uh, an attempt to uh, write some pieces, get some pieces out there uh, that in a uh, in a sort of short to medium form uh, that's a little longer than an op-ed, uh, has some a little more facts and figures and you can put into an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, addresses some of these topics, the ones that I've been uh, I've been mentioning. So um, things our first post up is about inequality and about, you know, what, I've been saying in this podcast a few times, why it is that I think that uh, that inequality, uh, the inequality statistics are are, are misstated, um, that there hasn't been an explosion in inequality the way that, that, that a lot of these uh, news reports would have you believe. Uh, go check out Liberty Lens, Liberty Lens Econ, dot substack dot com if you want to uh, you want to see more and I will be taking on a bunch of the other topics uh, as we go forward. So we just launched it last week and that's our our first uh, post and looking forward to more. Well, this has all been uh, fantastic, uh, Josh. Um, talking about you know everything um, in your career, starting from learning German as an undergrad at, at Yale and and going to work in in, in Germany and, and working in finance. I think you're, you're one of the few undergrads I know that that's really sort of applied and and uh, maintained their uh, um, their their language skills uh, in in another um, in another language. And your uh, your distinguished uh, career as a public uh, economist. Um, in, in careers uh, as a professor uh, here at Stanford uh, and at the Hoover Institution, um, and your uh, your time in government at uh, you know such a historic time um, when really uh, you, you know uh, this, these uh, issues around uh, spending and, and, and debt I think really became pivotal and and of course you, you know th- there's I think great arguments as well that you know that, that there was a great need for a response then as well and, and uh, really uh, wonderful to hear about these new initiatives uh, the Global Liberty Institute and, and Liberty Lens fantastic that uh, you, you know that there's uh, more public engagement going on. Um, and that you're working with uh, young uh, individuals, uh, and, and fantastic that uh, you're also engaging in uh, longer-form data journalism as well. Really, really wonderful to hear. Thank you so much, Josh, for joining us. Thank you, John. Today, my guest was Josh Rao, who is the Orman Family Professor of Finance at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is also the co-founder of the Global Liberty Institute and the Liberty Lens Substack. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.